Okay, so in case you haven't noticed by the sudden shortness, change of age and gender in your speaker, today is Youth Sunday. Um, in the past, most of my speaking for today has been much shorter, and today is probably still going to be substantially shorter than anything that he can do, but he's been to seminary. I'm only just applying for college. <laughs> um, I, I also apologize for the lack of visuals. I intended to make something, but I was testing for five hours straight yesterday, and the SAT just kills whatever coherent thoughts you might have had before you took it. <laughs> now, this first question is going to seem very off topic, but I promise there's a point. How many of you have watched Animal Planet, National Geographic, something like that? Yeah, I'd assume most. So, when I was younger, my dad used it as a tool. When my brother and I were very young, and we would be prone to wandering around, and any parent here with children under the age of six would know that. Um, so my dad used to ask us the question, if we wandered off too far, what happens to the gazelle that strays too far from the herd? And of course, the answer was, the lions eat it. Now, like, this may not have been the best method, but it's better than a child leash, and we didn't stray too far after it was imparted to us. Um, so this got me to thinking about how darker forces and temptations are a lot like those lions. Mind you, they won't turn up their noses at tempting anyone, but they often find targets who have either strayed too far from their faith or those who don't hold faith in the first place. And those who stray are often very young. This is where I come to the topic of youth and my own generation's relationship with the church. I belong to Generation Z, which is best characterized as those born right before or right after 9-11 to now. And they have only known what it is like to live in a post-9-11 world. Generation Z is also the first generation not to remember a time without computers or mobile phones, and it has been the primary test guinea pig for both smartphones and social media. Now, social media can be a wonderful thing. It keeps us informed, and it keeps us in touch, and we can communicate with people effectively. Without it, I still wouldn't be able to see Chloe's face or talk to her as frequently. And yes, if some Y2K event happened, I do know how to send a letter. <laughs> now, technology has created a very bright new horizon, in my opinion, for humanity as a whole. However, there are stark downsides to being born into a world that doesn't quite know how to manage that technology yet because it is so new. Social media has exposed Generation Z in particular to a harmful, toxic culture on social media that destroys your self-image and your sense of personality in so many ways. A few statistics. In the United States, 53% of 13-year-old girls are unhappy with their bodies and this grows to 78% by 17. 96% of 9 to 11-year-olds are on diets specifically for controlling their weight, and 40% of elementary-aged girls wish they were thinner. Over 50% of teenage girls use unhealthy weight control measures, such as skipping meals, fasting, or purging. In an article published in April, US News reported that 3.2 million 
two to 17-year-olds had suffered from at least one depressive episode in the last year, and only 20% received help. Many factors have contributed to this, the most notable ones being living in a world filled with socio-political uncertainty and news that is dominated by violent attacks and upheaval, a lack of community fueled by a fast-paced environment and, social, and an intense pressure to succeed, and of course, overexposure to internet and social media that they often use to compare themselves to others and gauge their self-worth with. In short, my generation has grown up surrounded by, and perhaps overexposed to, a world that does not appear to value God's teachings. We have grown up in a world where it is emphasized you are valued by how much you meet its standards of beauty and its standards of what it deems to be personal success, all while telling you that you can be turned on at any moment, especially if you fail in these aspects. The saddest part of it all is that as of a study made at the beginning of 2018, 37% of Generation Z believes it's impossible to be sure God is real. And roughly 12% identifies with having no faith at all. Even if that 12% seems like a small number, it is double the previous generation, the millennials. Now, let me return to the analogy I began this message with. When the herd, like a buffalo or gazelle, is placed under a threat, the young and sick members are kept in the middle, while the older and able members create a circle around them, and any predators that attempt to break this circle are usually met with more of a fight than they're willing to put up with. How I would equate that into the church is that when faced with darkness and temptation, most younger people look towards their elders, who usually happen to be better rooted in Christ and are able to guide them. In short, they look for a mentor. Now, I don't think it's controversial of me to say that the best Bible duos are mentor-student mentor um, relationships. You got Samuel and David, Naomi and Ruth, Barnabas and Paul, Jesus, and any of the disciples. Though it's a bit more literal with Jesus, as he was God in the flesh, God has consistently made the decision to place older, more experienced people in our lives in order to teach us and help us and guide us in our faith. I've had many, some who are elsewhere, and others who are in this church today. Sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> the trick is, how exactly is the older generation supposed to appeal to and successfully teach the younger? Because if there's anything that kids need today, it's definitely a mentor. As with everything, the Bible has got you covered. But the passage that I think summarizes the steps best is 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16. It's transcribed by Paul and sent to one of his own pupils, Timothy, who was growing into a position of leadership at his own church at the time. It reads, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scripture, to preaching and teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your healers. In that passage, we see five main points on how to present yourself in the eyes of the young who watch and learn. The first point I see 
is to commit yourself to teaching and communicating with the younger generation. As a young person who has gone through the public school system and whose parents are teachers, one is retired and one is still working, I can tell you that teachers are not always very good at actually teaching you. Often, they are very good at preaching. Mr. Steed, I promise I'm not calling you out. <laughs> when I say that, it's not necessarily in a religious sense. When I say that some teachers are very good at talk, when I say that, I mean that some teachers are very good at talking at you and not talking to you. Children, and especially teenagers, do not like to be talked at. In fact, I don't think anyone really likes to be talked at. I think the reason Paul includes both preaching and teaching is because um, there is an understanding that true learning happens through proper communication. To encourage proper rooting in Christ, the older generation needs to allow communication with the younger, and the way this can be done is by showing them that you value their voice. Even if we don't always show it, when a kid's voice is valued and listened to by an adult, it is one of the most uplifting feelings in the world. Valuing their voice when scripture is being discussed encourages them to read in deeper and ask more questions. And sometimes those questions can be a little uncomfortable. However, dodging those questions often leads to the same question being asked in less ideal and Christian-rooted places. Sometimes there are questions that can't be answered, and it's very difficult to admit when you don't know something. The catch is that with God, you're never going to know everything, and it's really okay to say that. When you encourage these discussions with your children or younger people, it prompts them to take a deeper root and prosper in Christ, and it really makes them feel actually included in the church. Even doing this in other contexts context outside of discussion of scripture is a really good way to build trust with kids because, again, you are making the effort to listen to them and discuss things with them, and you're encouraging them to learn and develop character in ways neither of you are probably ever going to notice until much later. The second point I see in that passage is that it's telling you to lose your gift. Well, not lose your gifts. Gee, use your gifts. <laughs> Some people are really good at writing, others are really good at technology and working with computers, others are really good at the arts with singing and dancing, and everyone has different strengths, and too often we forget that they are God-given and they are specially made. They were given to you through prophecy, which I personally think is the coolest thing ever. Um, now, I doubt this message, this message that Paul is trying to tell us is that you should brag on yourself when you display your gifts. No, if you're going to be bragging on anyone, it's God. Paul is telling leaders in the church to use their gifts specifically for glorifying God. And how can you use that to connect with the younger generation? Well, the catch with a lot of younger people that carries well into their 20s is that the vast majority do not see the potential that they have within themselves and they're still trying to figure out where their gifts lie and who they are as an individual. In displaying the ways you glorify God through your gifts and passions, you are setting an example for those still trying to figure themselves out. Maybe you have a gift in common with them, and you can guide them in learning how to use it for God. If you have different gifts, you can help them find a way to use their own. You can also refer to what we just talked about and use your gift as a teaching tool. 
I can't really expand on that too much more because as gifts are very diverse, the ways you can use them to teach are also very, very diverse. It's just a matter of initiating the conversation. The third point would be to continue to discipline yourself and continue to learn in these areas as well. I imagine one of the most difficult things about men mentorship, particularly in the church, is remembering to put aside time for yourself to continue to grow on your own. This is because you're never supposed to stop growing in Christ, and there is no point at which you've done enough and have just stopped. In that case, it's not stopping your growth, it is stunting your growth. I was talking earlier about how in your teens and 20s, it's the time period in which you are primarily finding yourself. But the key word is primarily. I don't think there's ever a point at which we stop discussing or discovering things about ourselves or our relationships because we live in surroundings that are constantly changing and over the years we change both physically and mentally. As a mentor, you need to make sure that while guiding your pupil, you are keeping yourself in check. You need to make sure that you are continuing to ask questions and talk to Christ. You need to make sure that you keep reviewing and evaluating scripture. A wise man once said that you need to remove the log from your own eye in order to pick the log from your own friend's eye. To be more specific, it was the son of man. Jesus was promoting self-care 2,000 years before it became a trend. Who knew? Essentially, you are keeping up with your own devotions. Because when you don't, that's when you turn into a hypocrite. By displaying your own continual growth, to the young and even to others who are your own age or older than yourself, you are setting a good example. The fourth point kind of goes hand in hand with this. You have to watch what you say and do. Which I suppose shows that Paul was really trying to make a point. Aside from showing an example by continuing to grow in their faith, a mentor should have careful watch over their behavior. He clarifies a bit later in Titus 1, 7 through 8, Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In short, Paul is saying that as a mentor, you should have enough of a root to hold more to Christ's teachings rather than to the teachings of the world. If you are not in that position yet, then it's better for you to wait to grow in your faith a bit longer before you're deeming yourself in the position to teach. It's difficult to admit that, but sometimes flowers bloom later on in the season, and it's better to wait for them to bloom than to cut the buds and try to make a bouquet with them. Even when you do get to the point at which you have freed yourself from most of these habits, there will be moments where a mentor might slip up, and that's also okay. A kid is able to relate better, I think, with someone who does have the occasional struggle. The good thing is that in turn, a pupil can assist their mentor just as their mentor assisted them. It becomes a partnership in which both parties hold each other accountable. The most important thing is that these do not become constant habits because that is also when you move from mentor to hypocrite, and that is never a good place to be. In doing all of this, you are teaching another how to build their own bricks up. You gain deeper kinship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and everyone is able to thrive rather than just survive. In addition, in a world where value is conditional, 
and their voices are repressed, by following these guidelines, a mentor is showing their student the value and strengths that God recognizes within them. Knowing this now, I would suggest a few applications. I wonder where I learned that from. <laughs> First one would be to sit down and have an actual conversation either with your own children or with a young person in the church. Communicate that you value them and their voice and that they are worthy and loved. Second bit of application would be to sit down and write a list of the strengths and gifts God has given you and to pray over how you can use them to glorify them. I actually thought of this because of a scholarship technique I was taught in which you write down all your strengths or traits and you use that to search for a scholarship, except in this case, you're seeing what God has given you. The third application, I would say, is to take some time alone to refocus on God. Take this time to consider areas that you need to improve on. Today is the day that we dedicate the babies and toddlers. They're not necessarily old enough to talk to, but someday they will be. When that day comes, they need a mentor because we've all seen the news. We all know in an age where we are constantly engaging with various forms of media, there's going to be new and unique challenges that they face. The job of their mentor is to show a guiding light from God in the dark world. The job of the mentor is to protect them from the lions. To those up and coming pupils and to my own peers, the advice I give to them is to listen to the older generation and their experiences because they still do carry value today to continue to strive towards the light of God, and to remember this verse also from Timothy. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Amen.